Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Power. And I am Dorothea Power. And welcome to the second episode of My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. That's correct. We are storytellers who talk about storytelling. So today we want to talk about the idea of what if. Ooh. It's very exciting. Ah. But before we talk about that, we have a little bit of an update for all of you just sitting on the edge of your seats waiting for the Gabby Wells series to be released. And that update is... What if I'm those people sitting on the seat waiting for it to be released? Because I really want it to be released. Yeah, but you have all of the power in that situation, so... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, so the good thing is that I just got, last night, I just got the first edit back from the editor, uh, mostly grammatical stuff. She did have a couple of, I don't want to say plot questions, but uh, clarifications that she needed. So I'm going to go through that this weekend. So I'm very excited about that. And also, I've been in touch with my book cover designer, and he's starting work on the second book, book cover. So that's all cool stuff. The first book cover is awesome. We have a copy of it. It is the background on our phones. Yes. Which is cool. I'm really excited to see what he comes up with for Lost and Found, which is the second book. Yeah, you know, this whole book cover design thing, it's, it, it really is an artwork in and of itself. And I don't mean the book cover, but the, the approach to it. Because when you're creating a book cover, you're not telling the whole story. You're just getting enough of the story so that people want to see your book. It's kind of like a one-page visual trailer. It doesn't even have to be accurate to what's in the book as long as it's in line with what's in the book because you're just trying to get people to to open the book and read the pages. So it's a completely different thing when when you're talking to these book cover guys. You have to give them very kind of general information like what's the mood theme and what are some of the set pieces that you would like in it. And then I just let him go. I mean, he's the artist in that respect. So it's kind of like a movie poster. But not a movie poster, because that would be offensive (laughs) to all book readers. Now explain that, you being a book reader that is offended by this. Well, the biggest pet peeve that seems to be pretty universal among book lovers is when a beloved book is made into a movie. And it's very exciting until you're walking through the stores and you see instead of the book cover you've come to know and love, the movie poster on a book cover. And it's just, it's awful in every way. Even if the movie poster is good, you still pretty much hate it. Yeah, you've pointed it out every single time we've been at a store and you're like, (laughs) see that book cover? That shouldn't be on there. It is a little thing that gets you set off. It drives me crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And I love movie posters, but book covers are different. Yes, they are. But they both serve the function of enticing your audience to come see the movie or read the book. So they both serve a function. Yeah, I mean, I get it. If a book has been optioned and actually has a chance to be made into a movie, well, I get that, you know, from a marketing perspective, you want to dovetail off of that, you know. But for the honest book lover like you, it's... Whatever. It's against... (laughs) (laughs) It's against your nature. It is very much so. But we're really excited about our book covers. We have a wonderful cover designer, and we will actually be releasing the first book cover pretty soon so yeah we're gonna do it near the the release of the book keep your eyes peeled kind of generate interest and another thing is that one of the struggles that we've always had from the beginning with these stories is that we kind of have two core audiences very different core audiences yes it's always been a, a challenge to figure out how to honestly represent the material to both audiences when they come from different sensibilities 
So I think I may have come up with a solution. I mean, I don't want to go into it on this episode, but I want to flesh it out more. But I, I think I may have come up with a way to serve both audiences, and uh, that would be awesome. It'd be pretty fantastic. Yeah. It would solve all of our problems. And create a lot more work. So <laughs> that's nice, too. Excellent. All right. So what if... Dorothea. What if? So the title of this podcast came from those two words. What if? Right. So we were, we carpool together and we were driving home from work and you said, what if we named the new podcast, My Name is Not Steve? I knew it would make you laugh, which is the reason I said it. I never for the life of me thought you would actually go along with it. But it, (laughs) I know, but it was it was just funny because we both like laughed and then we both stopped and said, well, what if we named it? My name is not Steve. And then we said, why the hell not? And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> episode two. So obviously it worked. So what are some of the other what ifs that, because this is a really important storytelling thing. This is really the generation of all stories. In your brain, you come up with that. Well, what if some farm boy had to take on some oppressive government evil entity and blow up a Death Star, right? I mean, (laughs) these are all these what-ifs that storytellers come up with. But if you're a writer, what if is the question you ask yourself every day? What if I did this with this character? What if this happened? What if this happened? And then you go from there. Yeah, because I'm actually still um, trying to flesh out some ideas in the second book. There's just this one area that still drives me nuts. And uh, and I keep going, well, what if Gabby did this or what if Gabby did that? So, yeah, that actually runs through my brain all the time. And that's really exciting when you're writing stories. But it's so much more fun when you apply it to real life. And how would you do that? <laughs> well, for example, I grew up in Florida and there are a lot of snowbirds that come at a particular time of the year. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Every year. Yep. (laughs) And they're very important to the economy and whatever. The problem is... (laughs) 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 The problem is that if you have anywhere to go and you live in Florida and you're stuck behind a snowbird, you're just not going to get there. It's just not going to happen for you. Yeah, they're never in a hurry because they're here on retirement. Well, I always end up ranting in my car and slamming the steering wheel going, you come here every year. How do you not know where you're going? Because you'll have people cut you off and then slam on the brakes and then start to turn and then change their mind. No, I didn't mean to turn there and then go somewhere completely different. And it's lovely. The worst of all of these snowbirds, in my personal experience, have been the ones with Canadian license plates. Mm. So there was an... But we we love people from Canada. (laughs) I should probably clarify. I do not have anything against Canada. Just against their license plates. (laughs) And there was one day that I was driving my mother somewhere. And it was a very unfortunate experience for her because I kept getting cut off by Canadians all over the place. Deciding that my lane was the lane in which they wanted to be. And slamming on the brakes. And I just got incredibly frustrated. So I went on this rant in the car about snowbirds in Canada and driving. And what are you doing? And then it became very American for reasons unknown and talking about why America's a better country and <laughs> it was just I just went off the rails pretty much <laughs> you'd reached a tipping point yes. I'd reached my breaking point and my mom looked at me with kind of frightened eyes <laughs> and she's like okay it's, it's okay they're just drivers and there's nothing wrong with Canada it's just you've been driving too long and I came home and told you that story and about mom's reaction and I thought to myself I'm pretty sure my mom thinks I hate Canada what if I convinced my mom I hate Canada <laughs> For absolutely no reason. 
I don't hate Canada. No. Canada's actually very beautiful. But for the following two years, I would just say these little jokes around my mom. I'd say dumb things like, who puts a leaf on a flag? Come on. Let me go back for a second. So you you decided two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago (laughs) that you wanted to just see what if I can make my mother think I hate Canada. And it wasn't even, (laughs) it wasn't around no one else. It wasn't an anti-Canada thing. It It was was just around around my mother. (laughs) And the funny thing is, I, I forgot that we had that conversation, right? So I just see like... Every once in a while, you would just make this snide comment about Canada. And I'd be like, what is up? (laughs) What is up with your thing with Canada? There's nothing wrong with Canada. And then you let me know. So then it became funny. But I just can't believe your your dedication... Of of doing this this experiment for two years. It was it was intense. There was um <laughs> there was one day that I was uh I was looking for something on the computer and Canada was the only country that did whatever I was looking for. But my mom was standing next to me and I said, Well, only Canada does it, so it doesn't really matter anyway. <laughs> or something to that effect. I mean, I remember you at dinner saying Something about Canada, and you just give me this like glance, like just to see see what I did there, and then and your mother, uh, to her credit or or not, um, never <laughs> picked up on your anti Canada stance. It was, I guess, too subtle for her, but it wasn't really. It subtle. really wasn't. And then you'd go off on the opposite, which is what we call America, not right? America, just America. America. So you'd be like, oh, those Canadians. I mean, you know. I mean, what do they do? They 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 curl up there, right? We, Americans <laughs> Americans have baseball. I mean, it was just so funny. And then that whole anti-Canada joke <laughs> evolved to include other countries as well, mainly Britain. Ah, uh, yeah, that's true. That that was a late the late comer to the party, I think. <laughs> well, I, I was joking with you one day that a very good friend of mine is not American. He's not British either, but he's not American and. I'm very American. Yeah, you're American. American. <laughs> we were joking one day, and I was honestly thinking, you know, I don't think I could ever marry someone who is British. And you looked at me, like, confused. Why? <laughs> and I said, because I always have these pro-America jokes that would just evolve into huge marital arguments. Like, for example, if my husband wanted to talk about something, I could realistically see myself saying, you know, honey, we revolted against you people for a reason. <laughs> I actually would like to visit England. I feel like people are going to think that I'm terribly bigoted. And here's the thing, is that you actually have no ill will to any of these countries. It's I don't. Just, it was just funny. So this this little idea, just because of bad driving. And the thing that drives us nuts, we see this even today, is why don't people just go to the next light and turn around, right? You see these people making the most dangerous turns. It happened to us just the other day. And it's like, you, if you just go to the next light, you can turn around. You don't have to cut across four lanes of traffic and almost kill me. Just to make this light. Anyway, so... so but they you, do. But they do. It's it's important, and I can't believe you wouldn't understand that. I know. I'm so insensitive to their you traffic You are so needs. insensitive. I know. I know. I mean, it's almost like you're from Canada. <laughs> That's an example. That's an example of what you would say. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that I know you so well that you would get this little glint in your eye. Because you really, you really stink at like holding your face on things. I am terrible <laughs> at lying. I know. So <laughs> you would start to say that phrase and you just get that glint like, this is so full of crap, what I'm about to say. 
And your mother just never picked up on any of that. It no, was really funny. It was really unfortunate. But two it was two years. <laughs> two years you invested. <laughs> it was a fun experiment. It didn't work out, but <laughs> it provided entertainment for us at least. It is the power of what if. <laughs> now, the power of what if. What if is really big in sci-fi and fantasy, right? Yes, it's absolutely huge. It's why I'm a, a very big fan of those two genres. The thing that I've always loved, especially about sci-fi, and you used to give me such a hard time about this because I'm such a geek, but the thing that I really love about those two genres is there are no limitations. I really enjoy dramas and I enjoy comedies and cop shows and all of that other stuff, but they're always limited by something. You're not going to find an alien growing in people's stomachs on Castle. It's just not well, going to happen. <laughs> it would be it would be a very unique episode, I think. But that's always an option in sci-fi, which is exciting because you never know where they're going to go. That was something that I really loved about Firefly, which was one of my favorite shows, mm. or Fringe, which was another show I enjoyed a lot, was yeah. no matter where they went, I could kind of see it happening because in this world, there are no limitations. Yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting. As you were saying that, I was thinking... I really enjoy those shows as well and, and that opportunity for anything can happen. But the other thing I, I realized for me that the challenge I have, I love Hitchcock stories because Hitchcock takes like a, a set of circumstances or maybe especially Rear Window, which is my favorite movie ever. And he takes that those very limited locations and makes it work in that. You know what I mean? Or, you know, in Psycho, he makes it work at a hotel and a, and a house. So to me, I guess it's when I, as a writer, I like the restriction because I like trying to figure out how to make that work within the restriction. So I don't know if I would really do well in a sci-fi world because I don't know if I'd have the patience to generate this entire world building. I kind of like to say, you know, this world you're in, it's not what you think. That to me is more fun than trying to create a whole world. You're more of a MacGyver kind of writer. I don't know. That's insulting. MacGyver was kind of a cheesy show. You're going to have to come up with another one. What I mean by that is that you take what you have around you and you find a way to make it work. Ah, I take a paperclip and some smelling salts and I take down a B-47. <laughs> exactly. I don't think there is a B-47, but that's how good I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, what if there was a B-47? Oh, I definitely take it down. Excellent. With <laughs> yeah. a paperclip. Yes, and smelling salts. The... Um, <laughs> And so as much as I love those shows, because you're right, like especially Fringe, for example, is a good example where, I mean, anything literally could have happened. They had an alternate universe. So, I mean, anything, if you can go there, believably, then you can go anywhere. And you also have an opportunity to go very dark in sci-fi shows, which I also enjoy a lot because I remember there was an episode of Fringe where they went into the alternate universe and the alternate universe people were technically the bad guys of the show, but that universe was so much better than the yeah. one that our characters came from. <laughs> I know, I kind of wanted to live there. <laughs> I wanted to live there instead. Yeah, and that's the thing too, is because expectations in a world that you create, a fantasy or sci-fi world, is that evil can be different and even more evil. Like it's hard for us and disturbing for us to think of of what serial killers do and all these other things because it is the real world and they're doing those horrendous things where in a world that you create what equals horrendous there can be much worse and so the the what's at stake and the consequences can be far greater and again that's just because anything can happen there are no limitations yeah you know and that phrase it's interesting because when we when we came up with the idea for the subject of what if one of the phrases I wrote down a long time ago was anything can happen. And I used to post it over my keyboard because 
when I would get stuck as a writer, the best thing and the worst thing that I, I love in the writing experience is to paint yourself into a corner. I think if you've done it for the right reasons, then the audience will have no idea how you're going to get out of that situation. And as a writer, you realize you don't know how to get out of that situation either. But then I would always look at that phrase and say, anything can happen. Because the reason you went there was not your intention. So you have to reset your world that you're writing. And then you go, okay, well, now that I'm here, how do I get out of it? And then I just go, well, well, anything can happen. I mean, a plane could show up, an asteroid could hit, or whatever. It doesn't matter. And it just kind of frees your mind. And it's that what if thing. When I'd see that phrase, anything can happen, I would just say, well, what if a plane showed up? What if a boat showed up? What if the person was teleported to another planet or whatever? I'm just making broad examples. But that's the idea. It's a very freeing thing. And it's at the core of the creative process as a writer. So that's one of the best questions I think you can ask yourself as a writer is what if. And I think some very fun and interesting situations arise when you ask that in your real life. Like anti-Canadian rants? Which are not serious. Gosh, I make myself sound so terrible. <laughs> it's not serious at all. It's not. Like, I, Canada is beautiful. It is. It really is beautiful. I and obviously just can't drive. I love just the old people, although that's probably true for the old people in general. Oh, now you hate old people? Nice. I know. <laughs> I hate driving. Anything affiliated with driving. That's true. I don't know. You hated driving. Like, just getting you to learn to drive was so difficult. <laughs> now we see the, the root cause, the foundation for all of these jokes related to driving. Was that I already hated driving and they were making it worse for me? Yes, that's actually it. See, we've actually had a revelation here during the show. Wow, that's pretty intense. Yeah, that's awesome. I do remember we were getting lunch one day and you were going to drive me back to work and I jokingly was not going to give you the keys and then I said, wait, no, I don't actually want to drive. Take them. <laughs> <laughs> so odd. I don't like driving. Anyway, that's completely unrelated. I know. But <laughs> Very it's fun. off topic. <laughs> but we had a revelation, and that's what matters. Yes. So what's your favorite what-if story, just from your life? Uh, well, there's a, there's a couple, some of which are embarrassing. But probably the best one is I was in college, and my friend and I put up a list. I kind of have to put this in the context because the world is so different now. So I went to the University of Florida in the late 80s, and I was in the theater department. And this is before anything was online which the first time I told you kids that, your head almost exploded. <laughs> it was yeah. awesome. You're like, what? What does that even mean? How did you do anything? <laughs> like, yeah, you went to the library and you got maps. Anyway, so the theater department had like three or four bulletin boards, cork boards located throughout the campus, like in the dance department or some of the places that we would rehearse. But the biggest one and the primary location for official news from the department was in the back of the Constance Theater, which is at the Student Union on campus. I think they've rebuilt it, so it's not the same way as it was. But when you went off the loading dock in the back of the theater, there was this big bulletin board. Like Pavlov's dogs, we were conditioned that anything on that board was important. And that's still true in theater departments because at my high school and my college, the theater departments were very similar. You're right. And so anyone in theater would probably identify with the story even more. But this was like the place for official communication. And so what would happen is that if you auditioned for a play, you wouldn't find out. No one would tell you personally whether you were cast or not. You would see a list, a cast list, and it would show the the role and who got cast. And so you just wanted to be on that list. In the movie Rudy, he keeps checking the list to see if he made the roster of Notre Dame football. So that's the way they communicated. Flash forward to like the last year in college, 
And Jay and I, my friend Jay from the theater department, he and I work together off campus. And one day at work, we kind of realized we're graduating soon. And we just started compiling a list of all the people we wanted to keep in contact with. And this was Jay and I's combined list. So obviously I wanted to keep in touch with Jay. So he's on the list and he wanted to keep in touch with me. So I was on the list. So we go through this list and it ended up being massive. It ended up being like 95 people or something. It was insane. At the end, when we were done, I said, well, we'll probably add some more. So I put on the list Pete and Jay's top 100, you know, and then I'm looking at the list and I want to say my memory says it was me that came up with the what if. It could have been Jay or both of us through some sort of natural conversation, but for the sake of the story, I'll just say I came up with it. Bask in my greatness. Yes, please. (laughs) Is I said, what if we take the title off of this list and just post it on the bulletin boards at school? And it would be funny because people would try to figure out this list. It's nonsensical without context. (laughs) So we'd like, that's the best case scenario is we'll just confuse people and it'd be funny, right? So at three in the morning, (laughs) one morning, Jay and I go around to all the places in campus where they have theater bulletin boards and we post these things, right? So the next morning we get to school and we're like, well, this should be funny. (laughs) So we go into the the Constance Theater and we go in the back by the loading dock. And next to the bulletin board is, is an office of a teacher named Ron. And Ron was one of the technical teachers. So in theater, there's performance arts and technical arts and technical arts is like construction of the sets, light design, things like that. Behind the scenes. Yes. So Ron's office was right next to the bulletin board. What's funny is Jay and I get there and we see that first off, like the entire theater department is looking at these lists. (laughs) Like word has gotten out that this list exists, right? And it's confusing people. So Jay and I get there and we, we just sit there in the back and we just watch this unfold. And it was so funny to hear people try to figure it out. So they're like, um, well, um, I guess it's only theater people. Oh, wait, no, this person's not in the department. It's just got to be students at the, oh, wait, no, that's a teacher. I mean, like we had, like, it made no sense, right? We, you had alumni on there. We had you alumni had... <laughs> that no longer went there, right? It just made no sense. So then I realized something is that there were two groups looking at this list. The people on the left closest to the list were the people that were on the list and they were happy that they were on the list even though they had no idea what the list meant and on the right side away from the list was all the people that weren't on the list and they were all telling each other how stupid the list was right (laughs) and it was like oh my gosh this is like a psychological experiment and so because again we've been we've been driven by expectations that if it's on the list if you're on a list on this board it's awesome right And so all the people were disappointed for not being on this list, even though they had no idea why the list existed, (laughs) right? And so I felt bad for them because I liked them. But, you know, some people you just aren't close to, right? And so we were inadvertently hurting all these people's feelings. It was kind of awful. So all day we go to class and this list is the only topic of conversation, (laughs) right? Everyone's like, literally, you'd walk into class and you'd hear people say, what's up with that list, right? And you'd hear all these theories, right? These conspiracy theories and the people that are on the list are like, I don't know, man, but it's, I mean, it's a pretty impressive list, you know? And the people not on the list, are like, it's stupid. It doesn't mean anything. And you just like, it was so odd, right? So this lasted all day. There was a bar that we used to go to after rehearsals and it was down by the Hippodrome, which is downtown Gainesville. It's a professional theater. It's, it's one of the best in the Southeast. And there was a bar called the Windjammer. It too is no longer there anymore. But the way it was designed, there were a couple of 
of booths in the back that the theater people kind of took over. We had headshots on the wall and all this. And so we'd always go there. And I used to go there to network with teachers and, and students and student directors to try to get work and, and stuff like that. So Jay and I go there that night and everybody is talking about this list. I mean, the, the energy being expended on figuring this out was massive. Even teachers now, teachers are like, well, I don't know. I don't know what that list is. The funny thing <laughs> is, is at the end of that first day, I went back and Ron had apparently been asked so many times <laughs> that he wrote in very angry red ink, I don't know anything about the effing list, Ron. <laughs> and he had like three exclamation points and effing wasn't effing and it was written on top of the list, right? He just wrote, he just got so pissed off that he just went out there and goes, I don't know anything about it. So anyway, this went on all night and Jay and I are like, wow, wow, this is amazing. So a couple of days later, people are still really talking about it. And then it started to wind down. So Jay and I decided to give it validity for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> so like, for example, I think the reason is you're both evil. <laughs> maybe. So, for example, this guy after class, we, we get done with class and he's like, hey, Pete, you want to go? You want to go get lunch? And I'm like, I don't know. Are you on the list? And he's like, yeah, I'm on the list. He was really happy. And I knew he's on the list because I put him on there. And I'm like, well, I guess then we can go. Right. So Jay and I did this. And, we just, and they're like, yeah, what is up with that list? Right. And it just became the conversation. So this went on for a whole week until the dean herself ripped them down. She actually went around campus and ripped them down because it was too disruptive. So now Jay and I had two options that we thought of. So we're at, we're at work one day and we're like, well, what do we want to do now? So we like, what if, what if we put the exact same list up, except we title it with a vaguely negative title. So then all the people who were happy would be sad and all the people who were sad would be happy. And we're like, Ooh, that would be pretty good. And I'm like, Ooh, what if, and this is worse. What if we post the same list with no title? and just scratch names off <laughs> and just see what happened to those people. They'd be like, what did I do? Like, why am I not on this awesome list? Right. So because the Dean was so upset and we were near graduation, we decided to do nothing. <laughs> that was probably the wisest choice we made. So the, the answer was, what if we do nothing and just let it die? So that's what we did. But the funny thing is, is go forward 10 years. A friend of mine in Orlando, Orlando at that time, Hollywood was trying to make it Hollywood East. That's why they built the studios, Universal and MGM there. And I had met a friend, Jenny, who was a film director and her now husband, Jeff. And she had this idea that all, all these Hollywood professionals came to Orlando to work in Hollywood East. She realized that during the summer when it's oppressively hot, no one worked. And she says, I bet I can get a whole bunch of stunt guys for cheap over the summer because they're not working anyway. She's always been brilliant at that sort of stuff. She came up with this idea for a story. She fleshed out part of it. And she said, Pete, would you write this script for me about this action story? And, and it's like in an action story, it's like 25% character and 75% action. And what was funny is that she would, she would just call me and say, hey, listen, ooh, I got access to two jet skis and a boat we can blow up. Can you add that to the story? I'm like, okay. She's like, ooh, I got, I got access to a plane and a semi. Can you do that? I'm like, yeah. So that was, it was the weirdest writing experience. <laughs> so anyway, I wrote that script. It's a low budget, you know, very low budget action movie. It's called Ready, Willing, and Able. 
it's a really cool story, but it was just a low budget action flick. So one of the things you do when you want to distribute those is you have to sell it to either domestically and you can sell it internationally. So there's a thing called the American film market. I think they still do it this way. This is back in the 90s. What you do is you bring your film there and then you talk. This is where a collection of all these international distributors were located and you'd sell the rights to them. And I know we sold it to like Italy and Russia and this is whatever. And what's funny is like every, I'm not kidding, three to five years, I get a check from the Writers Guild for my work on Ready, Will, and Enable because wow. it still makes money somewhere in the world. It's kind of funny. It's like 30 bucks. Those fools. I know. Anyway, it's just, it's just funny. So Jenny and Jeff said, why don't you come out to Los Angeles and just experience the American film market? We're going to have a screening. Some of the stars will be there and I got to see them on set. So it was kind of fun to go see them again. So I fly out there to Los Angeles, and one of my friends from college, Jennifer, is out in Los Angeles, and she's she's working there. And so I was like, Jennifer, do you want to get together for lunch? And she's like, that'd be great. So we go to lunch, and after you know five minutes of what are you doing, what are you doing thing, the first thing she says is, what was up with that list? <laughs> and I'm like, what? And she's like, the list on the board, what is up with that? Every time I talk to anyone from the theater department, <laughs> that's the first thing we talk about. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this thing has lived on for a decade, right? It's in their mind. It's a mystery they can't solve, right? So I go, I said, Jennifer, Jay and I did that list. And she got so mad that she punched me in the arm. And she said in a very loud voice in a public restaurant, you jerk. Except she didn't use the word jerk. She called me a, a male sexual body part. And then... I was like, Jennifer, what's your problem? You were on the list. I I don't understand your concern. But it was amazing that this what if thing turned into this massive thing. Because what I realized thinking about the story was that what we did and what really good stories do is they take your known expectations. Like we expected anything on this bulletin board to be official and to be good, right? We were trained and conditioned that way. And we just took that idea, and we didn't mean to. We weren't that brilliant. But we took that idea, and we just turned it around. And it just became this really weird psychological experiment. And then I think of the really good stories, and that's what they do. I mean, you you talked about Firefly. Well, the cool thing about Firefly is that it was a sci-fi Western, right? It had all the sci-fi expectations, but it also had a Western component, which was unique and cool. It changed the expectation. I would have loved to have been in the room when Joss Whedon pitched a space western. That's just such a great what if. You know, what's funny is that Star Trek was originally pitched as a space western. Well, that makes sense. It is the the final frontier. Right. Because the most popular thing on television at that time were westerns. Gene Roddenberry said, no, it is a western. It's just in space. And it's uh, these people traveling from one destination to another, and they come across people like tribes or whatever. And another thing that you can use as a writer in this twisting the expectation is, I won't destroy the, this isn't our spoiler alert section, so I won't ruin it for people, but I watched the movie Serenity, which is based on Firefly. And the more I watch that, the more brilliant that script gets to me. But one thing that Joss Whedon does really well is that he has probably the most lovable character in that group do something so heroic that he saves everybody and then immediately dies, immediately gets killed. And it is so, for anyone who knows that show, it's so heart-wrenching that you're like, what? Because the expectation was the hero gets the glory, right? And he turned it on its head. And I remember reading an interview with him and he said the reason he did that is because he wanted the audience to know anything can happen. You don't know. You think you know what's going to happen, but they're about to go into a dangerous situation. And if they can kill off this guy 
They can kill off anybody. Well, and especially at that time, movie heroes came out with all of the glory. They won. They were successful. They got the love interest. They they got everything. And this particular character got none of that. And it was awful. It was awful. But, it was really heartbreaking. But so effective. It was almost as bad as that Twilight Zone episode, which shall uh, remain nameless, that... Can I, I want to say his broke name. Broke my heart. If you say his name, I will punch you. <laughs> this is what Jennifer did to me in the cafeteria. All right. It's with Burgess Meredith, and it's about a guy who survives oh. an apocalypse, and he can read, and he has really thick glasses, and that's all I'm going to say. But I remember watching that show and literally felt like my heart was taken out, stomped, and then set on fire. And so <laughs> when the Twilight Zone was on and you guys were old enough, and it's, it sounds masochistic. I wanted because you guys, it is. No, it isn't. <laughs> I wanted you guys to go through that, not because I wanted you to go through that. I wanted you to recognize what storytelling could be. Storytelling should elicit emotion. And that, like what happened in Serenity, what happens in that Twilight Zone episode. I think the episode is called Time Enough at Last. Yes. For those of you who want to have your heart ripped out and yeah. stomped on for no reason. I wanted you to see that so you could understand, wow, storytelling can actually be very powerful. I remember because I grew up watching stupid sitcoms like the Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island and crap like that. And then Twilight Zone is on one night and I watch it. And I'm like, this is not the way it's supposed to end. <laughs> Again, take my expectations and turn it around, you know. Well, one of the most powerful moments for me experiencing that was actually reading the final Harry Potter book. And if you have not read the final Harry Potter book and you don't want it to be spoiled for you, fast forward or do not listen because I'm going to spoil it for you. There is a character who in the movies is not as prominent named Percy Weasley. And throughout the books, he goes through a journey where he kind of abandons his family and decides with the dark side and with the Death Eaters and the ministry. And he doesn't really have a sense of humor. But his brothers, Fred and George Weasley, absolutely have a sense of humor. They open up a joke shop. And so these siblings are always at odds with each other, and it's a source of humor throughout the books. But in the final book, Percy's been away from his family for a while, but in the final battle of Hogwarts, he comes back and he says he's sorry and he's going to fight with his family. And it's really beautiful and really moving and very touching. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he goes and he's fighting with his family. And one of the Death Eaters that he's fighting against is actually the Minister of Magic, who he's been siding with for the majority of this series. So he's fighting against him, fighting against him. Fred is right next to him. And Percy looks at the minister and says, you know, please accept this as my resignation as he's trying to kill him. <laughs> and Fred is just completely taken aback. He's like, did you just make a joke? Did Percy just make a joke? Is that really what just happened? He's floored by that, thinks it's absolutely hilarious. And while he's laughing at the fact that his brother has finally gotten a sense of humor, Fred is immediately killed. And I will forever remember the exact phrase because I had to read it seven times. I would literally go two chapters forward and then I'd flip back to Fred's death because I just would not accept that it happened. And it was totally heartbreaking because she wrote that he had died with the lines of his last laugh still etched on his face. And I think we should all take a moment of silence. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that, that list and all that story, it's all about, you know, anything can happen. And then the greatest thing you can do with that what if is that you can take expectations and turn it around to surprise the, the reader or the audience. And those stories do tend to be the most powerful. Right. Whether right. you like them or not. Yeah, because you can't stop thinking about them, even if you hate them, like Canadians. <laughs> Gosh, I sound like such a terrible person. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to our spoiler alert. 
That alarm is so annoying. It is. You could have chosen another one. Uh, I didn't choose it. It chose us. <laughs> <laughs> so the spoiler alert for today is... Visual cues in television or movies that give away too much information. Such as, I was watching Rizzoli and Isles once. There was one episode where they're looking for two, I don't know if it's bank robbers or something like that. And so their investigation leads them to a daycare. Okay. And in this daycare, there's all these parents and all these kids. And as they're talking about the two people, the director chooses to show a close-up of two guys sitting next to each other. And this is like 10 minutes into the show. And I'm like, bad guys. Guess who the bad guy is? I'm like, why would you do that? Like, I wrote a screenplay called One View Only about a, a stalker. And I wrote it specifically understanding this problem that you have in stories. Because in all these stories, there's only so many characters, right? It has to be usually one of them. That's the problem with mystery shows or cop shows. It's like, well, there's only seven people you've introduced. It's got to be one of them. And so I understood that problem. So in the screenplay I wrote... I wrote a story about a stalker, except it's a stalker that I never name, and it's a stalker that is only in the background, and only later does the, the woman being stalked figure it out visually in her head who that stalker is, because I knew if I gave him a name, like we talked about last time, they're going to know, right? So those visual cues are really important, but they also do the opposite, right? So if you don't show somebody, that means something. For example, on Castle, there was a character named Chet, who Castle's mother, Martha, was dating. And we were watching the show one night, and I just looked over at you and said, I just don't feel like Chet's that important. And you said, why? And I said, because they've never shown him on camera. If the character never appears, they're either going to be killed off. They're going to be a source of character development for the character that they're interacting with, but they're not going to be an important character. To the story as a whole. To the story as a yeah. whole. And this is true, like in uh, NCIS, the girl Bishop, because after you said this to me, I was realized... Well, they keep talking about her husband, but he's never been on. So she's either going to get divorced or he's going to get killed because he doesn't matter. Until a couple episodes, they brought him on. Finally. Yeah. So those visual cues are important. And um, sometimes they can tell you, spoiler alert, who the bad guy is, which I hate when they do that. And that's just the director's fault, by the way. We're not stupid. If you were just to show the wide angle of the people in the daycare center and you see all the parents, then I don't know that two of them are that. And then later on, when I see them, they can go, oh, wait, you were at the daycare. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I can rediscover that if I see the show again. That would be neat to see them in the background somewhere. Or you have a situation in Castle or NCIS where if you don't visually see a character, then their importance is really diminished. But an example of that being done well is actually in Fringe because there are characters called the Observers yes. who become very important later on in the story. But if you go back and watch the first season of Fringe, they are everywhere. They're in every episode in the background. They're walking everywhere. They bump into people. It's amazing. Like when we went back and watched it, I'm like, oh my gosh, they had planned these guys out from episode one. They are in every episode. It is so cool. We actually went back and looked for them and, yeah. and they were everywhere. So cool. It was one of the coolest reveals to go back and to see, oh my gosh, this had been planned. So that's the power of what if, and that is the power of visual storytelling. Yes. And since we're writing books where the visuals are in their imagination, it's been very effective. You should stop <laughs> speaking now. You should go to Canada or Britain and think about what just happened. The thing is, I do want to go to both of those countries. <laughs> oh, you're not welcome there after today. I'm not welcome anymore. No, nope, that's it. You ruin your chance. <laughs> All right. See, this is what happens when you take a joke meant solely for your mother 
and broadcast it on the internet. <laughs> and whose fault is that? Well, I wanted to know what would happen. <laughs> what if, right? What if. All right, that's it for the show. If you want to contact us... Please feel free to comment in the comment section or email us at contactus at sunlightpress.com. Again, if your name is Steve and you'd like to defend it, we would be happy to hear from you. Bring it. <laughs> so that's all the time we have. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>